Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hello, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. Today's theme is confessions. Starting with St. Augustine and ranging from Thomas de Quincey to Karl Ovenausgaard, writers have unburdened themselves in the pages of literature, and we have been entertained, scandalized, and maybe even improved by their personal sagas. Our guest today is the writer Patina Gappa, whose novel The Book of Memory features a confession by a woman in a Zimbabwe jail. Octavia, can you introduce Patina before we start the interview? Sure thing. Patina Gappa is a Zimbabwean writer with law degrees from Cambridge University, Graz University, and the University of Zimbabwe. Her debut story collection, An Elegy for Easterly, won the Guardian First Book Prize in 2009. Her first novel, The Book of Memory, was published by Faber and Faber this September. Patina, thank you so much for being here with us today on Literary Fiction. We've asked you to do a brief reading, so could you set it up for us, please? Thank you very much for inviting me. I don't think that this is going to need much setting up. I'm just going to go straight into the beginning, and I'm going to read from the first two pages and three lines of the novel. The story that you have asked me to tell you does not begin with the pitiful ugliness of Lloyd's death, it begins on a long-ago day in August, when the sun seared my blistered face, and I was nine years old, and my father and mother sold me to a strange man. I say my mother and father, but it was really my mother. I see them now as I saw them on the day we first met Lloyd. They are in the clothes that they wore to church on Sundays, and when we went to town for window shopping, because if you are going to hand your daughter over to a perfect stranger, you need to look your best. My mother wears a white dress with big red poppies all over it. Around her waist is a cloth belt in the same material, and on her head, a red hat with a white plastic flower on it. Her shoes and bag are white. My father is in a safari suit whose color I can no longer remember. Or perhaps it wasn't a safari suit at all that he wore, and I've only put him in one because it is what all the men wore in those days. His hair shines with bro cream. It was a happy day for me. I wore my favorite dress, a white lacy dress with a purple sash, my Christmas dress from the year before. I was in town, far from the torments of my school playground nemesis, Nau, who tormented me as much at home as at school because he lived on our street. I was in town with my father, who held my hand as we walked. I was happiest about this, that I had him to myself, with one sister at the school and the other recently dead. To crown my joy, a white woman in the chocolate section of the department store came up to us as we moved towards the lifts. She wore glasses with frames that elongated upwards into points on each side of her face, giving her eyes a distorted look, as though I was seeing them through the milk bottles, the gold and silver topped ones, the ones that we bought at the shops. She looks like an angel. Isn't she an angel? She said. She gave me a dollar coin. It felt large and unfamiliar in my hand. That brings with it another, earlier memory of the 25-cent coin that a nurse gave me when I cried hard after an injection at Gomo, the government hospital for the poor. I had bought sweets, which now persuaded me to plant in the street outside his house. They would grow into a large sweet tree, he said. From the chocolate section on the ground floor, we walked to the lift. A man in a maroon uniform with a large scar running down his face announced each floor as we reached it. Third floor, children's toys, children's clothes and tea room, 
he said as we left the lift. My parents and I sat on one side of a booth. A bee hovered over my glass of cherry plum before toppling into the fizzy purple drink. It tried to fly out, but its wings were wet and heavy, and it floundered in the bubbles. And there was ice cream to go with the cherry plum, an elaborate sundae that Lloyd bought for me. Lloyd was on the other side of the booth, complete with a whole banana and sprinkled with hundreds and thousands. I remember, too, the first words that Lloyd said to me. Speak, Nemozine, he said. I had no way of knowing then that Lloyd was teasing me, that Nemozine was another word for my name, memory. But perhaps I'm confusing this with the second day that I saw him, the day he walked me to his car and into my new life. Thank you so much for that. I think that reading um, and the, from the very first pages of the book, we get this sense that memory is a very slippery, fragile thing. And not only is um, the, the main character's name memory, but she really is writing down her memories. So can you talk a bit about why you wanted to write this into the book and how you wanted to depict the way that we remember things? Yeah, that's a really great question. I mean, first of all, I was very lucky because memory is a very common Zimbabwean name. As you will see um, throughout the book, we have some really special names. Um, and memory is one of the more common names, both for men and for women, for boys and girls. And it's a name that's usually given to a child when the mother, and it's usually a mother's name, when the mother wants to remember something. And it's not always something happy. So memory is a, is a name that in, in itself already carries a lot of, you know, it, it carries a lot of um, history because the mother is trying to remember something in her past or in the family's past. And then there was also the idea of how unreliable memory is. Memory itself is, is ext extremely unreliable. So the two ideas came to me almost simultaneously, writing a novel about a character called memory in which memory itself is unreliable. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting reading it, and I'm a reader who didn't have much context for the book. I don't know much about Zimbabwe, I don't know much about Zimbabwean culture. And, um, but as you read it, and the other characters also have names that, that are very symbolic, like gift and more blessings and things, you start to understand that there's this tapestry mm. that maybe doesn't translate so well culturally until you get really um, stuck into the book, and then you realize, you know, I think you very successfully reconstruct this world that for foreign readers they're going to understand um were you were you were worried about any of that were you worried about uh say a, an english audience or a french audience i don't know other countries um misunderstanding zimbabwe through your book or were you trying to get a particular image across i was a little bit worried about especially the foreign publishers i have to say because zimbabwe is an english-speaking nation so words and names like memory, gift, more blessings translate extremely well into a UK context, even though you might not name children that, but you'd understand why someone would name children that. But how do you translate that into French or Swedish? I mean, I, I, I'm a translator myself, so I'm very interested in the questions of translation. Is it permissible to translate a whole name? You know, so for me, that was one of the things that I worried about. But then I, I decided that I should stop w worrying about how the book would be perceived, and I should just write about you know, the, the, the characters within the context in which the story occurs. And in that sense, the most natural thing to me was to use names and use language, especially dialogue, in the way that Zimbabweans 
would use, would name their children or in, in the way that Zimbabweans would speak. So the one thing that I'm, I very worry will not really come, I, I worry will not come across as well as it would to a Zimbabwean, I think is, well, the one thing that I think I got right in, in the novel, which is the way people speak. It's, the novel is very true to the way people speak because I, I wrote a lot of it when I was in Zimbabwe and I was, my ears were constantly open and I, I hope I got that across. <laughs> I think you did. <laughs> um, why did you want to have memory telling her story, not just to the reader, but giving her a chance to exonerate herself to a reporter? Gosh, I'm so glad somebody's asked me that question. You know, it, it, it really started be, that that idea of memory is writing to somebody and speaking to somebody it actually came to me because I was a very green novelist, uh, a very a, a novice writer, and I just don't take seriously the first-person narrative. I, I just, you know, want to know why am I being told the story? Who is telling the story? What is the purpose of the story? I know that there's this whole fiction that you enter into the mind of the character, and all, but it just didn't seem natural to me, you know, that a woman on death row would just start telling her story for no reason. So I wanted to create an intermediary between the reader and the narrator. So the intermediary came in the form of this journalist. And then also because I'm writing a story that's very specific to Zimbabwe, in Zimbabwe, and I needed to do a lot of explaining, but I don't really like explaining books. So the idea that she was explaining this to somebody to whom the culture and everything is new seemed to make perfect sense. And so once I got that, it, it became a very easy novel to write. I mean, that aspect anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the voice. <laughs> Everything else was torture. Oh. <laughs> um, you trained as a lawyer, and I, I wanted to ask you how that has influenced the way that you wrote this book that is about culpability and, you know, set in a legal context. This woman's on death row, committed for, um, I mean, yeah, for a crime that, you know, she says she doesn't commit, and I, yeah, I, I, it's interesting that your um, background in the legal profession and mm. your new profession as a novelist kind of combine. Mm. This is actually uh, a, a novel that has nothing to do with my other life as a lawyer because I'm not a criminal lawyer at all. I've I've not even handled one criminal case. I I worked for Z in Zimbabwe for six months uh, with a law firm before I moved to Europe to do international law, which is, which is so completely different from, you know, the kind of law that is, you know, at issue in this book. So in many ways, I was also looking to my friends who are lawyers in Zimbabwe to say, what would be the charge if, so if a woman is, um, you know, accused of killing a child under the age of two, you know, because there are different degrees of killing children. There's, there's you know, there's a you know, termination of pregnancy, there's infanticide, there's homicide, depending on the age of the, it's a horrible thing to think about, but depending on the age of the, of the child. So I had to you know, ask my lawyer friends, you know, for all those technical things that I'd forgotten because I last did Zimbabwean law 20 years ago. So in that sense, I would say that my legal background had very little actually to do with, with this novel because the kind of law that I do is not at all criminal law. But I have to say that being a lawyer did help in one sense, the kind of lawyer that I am. I work in a team of lawyers and we prepare texts. And the idea is to get the best text possible. There's no pride of authorship. 
So when my editor said, this is shit, you know, I mean, he <laughs> not that he would say, you know, Lee is a very gentlemanly person, Lee Braxton at Faber, he wouldn't say it quite as bluntly, but when he said, this is just really not, you know, the standard that we have come to expect of you, you know, so s sort of like, a, you know, I'm disappointed father kind of thing. M my immediate thought wasn't to defend the text, but to say, how can I make it better? So I think because I've been edited all my life, it's very easy for me to be edited as a writer. And so that process of working in a collaborative manner on a text is something that I, I absolutely enjoyed in, in writing this novel. Yeah. You said earlier that this novel was a struggle. What was most difficult about writing it? This is going to sound like such a first world problem. You know, I call it a first world problem from a third world woman. <laughs> uh, it's a novel that was bought on the basis of three chapters. And there were like 10 publishers around the world who were very excited at reading those chapters. And at the time, it was absolutely the most wonderful thing. But in the end, it actually turned out to be a really bad thing to sell a novel before you finished it. Especially as the first book that I wrote wasn't actually meant to be a book. It was meant to be the stopgap. You know, this is what we're going to, the little stories, we're just going to send them into the world while we wait for you to finish the novel. So the whole focus of the publishing deals was the novel. And then, of course, once you've sold a book that you haven't finished and people are asking, so where is it? Where is it? Because they've bought it. They own it. It's theirs. I, I found that really, really difficult. Because part of the reason I became a writer only at the age of 37 is that I have serious neurosis about whether I'm actually good enough to be a writer. So a lot of it was, oh, they're going to find me out. Oh, they're just going to know. They're just going to know that I'm an imposter, you know? So... I I went through six years of that, of doubting myself, 33 drafts, and just really struggling to actually finish the novel that everybody was waiting for. <laughs> well, I say everybody, but some people were waiting for. <laughs> 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 oh, it's interesting that you talk about feeling like an imposter. Our last show was on the imposter in literature, and we were huh? talking about how writers, especially women, it seems, in our lives, people we know, feel like an imposter in their own life, because there's constantly that sense that, yes, like you said, you're about to be found out. I feel it constantly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I felt like the untalented Mr. Ripley. <laughs> <laughs> he featured heavily in our show last week. <laughs> he really did. Um, to change the tack a little, I wanted to, to ask you about the conditions of the jail where memory is mm. in prison, because for me as a reader, I found it shocking um, to read about how, how awful um, those conditions were. And there's a point I don't want to reveal too much about the story, so our listeners can read mm. without... Um, knowing what happens, but there's a, a point later on in the story where she, where we hear about her being in a particularly dark isolation mm. um, space. And I, I wondered, you know, how did you research those kind of jails mm. and, and did you visit any or, or mm. how did that come about? I actually had an opportunity because I, I was working with a group of wonderful women who were feeding the prisoners, especially during the time of crisis in 2008. But I went back to Zimbabwe in 2009 after the crisis was over. But I found myself involved with these women. I was one of the people who helped to rebuild Chikurubi Prison Library. We you know, got books for, for prisoners. I have to tell you a funny story about the kind of books that prisoners in, Chikur in Chikurubi are allowed to read. We had um, a long lecture from the superintendent, the, the, the man in charge. He said, nothing about suicide. We don't want them to get depressed. Nothing about homicide. We don't want them to commit any more murders <laughs> after they leave. We don't want them to get any funny ideas. So nothing about crime, but romance. We like romance. 
we like romance and children's books. <laughs> so we coll collected a lot of, you know, Mills and Boons and uh, Harlequin romances and, you know, children's books, Enid Blyton and, and all that sort of thing. But I actually held back a lot on, on the prison scenes because that's the other thing. I was terrified, you know, of, you know, the whole poverty porn accusation that, oh, you know, she's just unpeeling the misery just to you know, uh, to titillate or whatever. So so I really, I, it, I could have gone even further than I did, but I, I, I sort of held back because I was really nervous about just misery for the sake of misery. But the one thing that I really found um, in talking to people who had been in prison as well as, you know, these women I'd worked with was the question of water was just about the most crucial. It was water and food. When there's no water in the prison, especially you know women who are menstruating, and you know it's it's, it's just really grim, and the food situation as well. Um, prisoners get absolutely the worst food that there is, and they actually grow food on their farms, but usually the prison guards sell it and and make a profit. So those two issues, I felt you know even if I didn't want to actually go down the poverty porn route, I absolutely had to be faithful and true to how life is actually lived in prison. And I did have a chance to actually visit Chikurubi, but I would have had to sign the Official Secrets Act, <laughs> which <laughs> would sort of like, you know, have been the opposite of, you know, the reason that I wanted to go there. I wanted to go there to write about it. And, you know, if I signed a document that said I couldn't write about it, I felt it, it constrained me considerably. So I, I didn't um, sign the, the Official Secrets Act in the end, and I didn't go. Mm. Most of the pity. But maybe, maybe I will be involved again in another way. And, and on the subject of poverty porn or the fetish, you know, making Africa with a capital A a fetish object, did you, do you feel pigeonholed as an African writer? Do you feel um, that there is a risk of, you know, people taking your work and putting it in a box in that way? There's a wonderful, I'm sure everybody in the world um, who talks about the subject has, you know, listened to Chimamanda Adichie's TED talk. There's a line in there that nobody ever quotes, but it is so, so perfect. She says, stereotypes are terrible because they're not complete. It's not that they're not true. I mean, the Italians are great dressers. <laughs> they really are, you know. <laughs> you know, the French are, you know, romantic lovers and all that. Not every French person, obviously. I mean, I, I should know, but... <laughs> 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 but, you know, the, the, the point about stereotypes is that they, are, they reveal a large truth, but it's not all there is you know, ab about a place. So, so the same thing with, you know, um, when we talk about Africa, it is a very poor continent. There's no question about that. And there's a lot of misery on the continent. There's no question about that. But there's also laughter. There's joy. People get married. People quarrel over stupid things. It's not just about child soldiers, you know, murdering each other and all the rest of it. It's it's a very complete world that people live. It just happens to be poorer than a lot of other places in the world. So in my writing, and, and not just in the Book of Memory, but especially in the stories I'm writing now, I'm writing a sh collection of short stories that's about crime in Zimbabwe. And those stories are, are really important to me because they're about dark, dark things, you know, uh, murder, rape, you know, all the horrible things that people do to each other. But they're also about all the other redeeming, lovely things that happen in life. So for me, it's about finding the right balance. And I'm hoping that in the Book of Memory, I managed to find that balance because even in prison, with all the conditions um, that we were talking about just now, 
there's still a lot of humor, there's still a lot of laughter. And, and I really do hope that I manage to bring that out as well as, you know, the more grim aspects. <laughs> I think one of the places where that, that's very much the case is in the character of Lloyd, um, who's the man who takes memory in. Um, and in some ways, he is sort of, he sums up what is wrong with Zimbabwe. He, his family were white colonists um, and he has lots of pictures in his house of them fighting in the wars. Um, and he lives in this intense world of privilege that wouldn't have been open to memory had he not taken her in or bought her. Um, but at the same time, there's something very gentle and kind about him. Um, and I, I was just wondering, how, how did you come up with his character mm. and what did you want to show? Well, I'm so glad you mentioned Lloyd because Lloyd is actually, to me, a representative of a type of white Zimbabwean. And I use the phrase white Zimbabwean, not Rhodesian. It's a, an example of a white Zimbabwean that is in danger of being forgotten. And these are the white Zimbabweans who may have had, you know, grandfathers or great-grandfathers who were part of the invading force, the pioneer column, but they took that country to their heart as their own. And a lot of them did a lot of really important work, like translating the first Shona Bibles, or um, you know, producing the first Shona, you know, Shona grammars and Devele grammars. They, they taught at the university. A lot of them were fluent Shona speakers. And to me, they, they participated in the cultural development of the nation in a way that um, really is irreplaceable. And unfortunately, because of the nature of race politics in Zimbabwe, we're forgetting that we had a lot of white allies you know, in the fight for independence. And he certainly, Lloyd, the character, he fought in the independence war on the side of the blacks. You know, He was a teacher in the refugee camps and so on. So I wanted to write about that sort of white liberal elite um, because there are quite a lot of them. I'll, I'll give you an example of somebody that I admire very much, um, uh, uh, Garlake, who was an archeologist. And he, is the he, he actually lost his job and ruined his career in Rhodesia because he insisted that the great Zimbabwe ruins in the south of the country were built by black people. You know, the R Rhodesian regime put out the theory that the Phoenicians came down and for reasons best known to themselves, <laughs> decided to build this great city in the middle of nowhere. Only that city, by the way, there are no other Phoenician ruins for miles around. <laughs> I mean, the closest Phoenician ruins are somewhere near Phoenicia, you know? <laughs> but for some reason, the Phoenicians came down and they built the great Zimbabwe ruins. And he lost his career and he suffered greatly in his life because he insisted that all the evidence was to the effect that these ruins were built by black people, local black people. Um, so I wanted to pay tribute to people like, like Tony Garlake and, you know, people who who really sacrificed themselves and also um, gave their careers in the service of Zimbabwe, of all Zimbabweans. And one thing we haven't mentioned yet, you talked about race politics in Zimbabwe and memory is actually an albino. Um, and to me, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that did seem a sort of commentary on, on the arbitrariness of race um, and how, how easily it breaks down. Exactly, exactly. She shares the same genetic inheritance as her brothers and sisters who are not albino, but she doesn't look black on the face of it, you know? 
In fact, there are a the couple of passages where from a distance, you know, people will think she's white, and then they come closer and they see that her features are maybe a little negroid or whatever the scientific term is, and they're like, oh, okay, so this is who you are, and then the face immediately changes. But I did want to comment on just how narrow our understanding of race is and how visual it is and how mistakenly visual it can be. And in, in, in an original version of this uh, a novel, Lloyd himself was an albino, but that was, it, it just became very, very complicated. But wha <laughs> what I wanted to really comment on is how Zimbabweans perceive whiteness. You know, whiteness has a certain privilege to it, but there's a whiteness, the whiteness of the albino that does not have that sort of privilege attached to it. Yeah, and it's interesting to think of what you were just saying about Lloyd, the figure of Lloyd being um, one that you wanted to pay tribute to. And he sort of crosses some of those race boundaries in terms of his ideology and what he dedicates his life to. I mean, there's the, a moment in the book where, where you, and it's interesting that you're a translator, where you say how he translated the Greek classics into yeah. Shona, which yeah. made me love him a lot. You know, <laughs> like you get to that, you realize it's, you know, the white establishment might view that as a quixotic thing, but actually, no, it's this incredible mm. way of making these two cultures communicate. And, and he's saying we're all part of the same larger culture, and exactly. I think it's a wonderful thing. Exactly, and mm. that brings me to my next question, because I love the parallels you draw between the chimera mm. and the Ngozi mm. um, figure of this kind of violent sprite, because it, it, put, it placed this trope that's obviously from sort of deep Zimbabwean culture into a context that me as a British reader could completely understand. Mm. Um, but I, w I wanted to ask you more about the Ngozi because it's such a fascinating, mm. uh, I don't know what to even call it, spirit. Mm. The Ngozi is an avenging spirit. It's a sort of a nemesis. Uh, the Erinias, you know, the in, in Greek mythology, you have these avenging spirits that pursue you mm. um, until, until you're dead, basically. They gouge out your eyes and do, do all sorts of horrible things to you. And because Zimbabwe didn't have the kind of, well, let me use the word sophisticated because I, I mean it in a positive manner, not in a, in a negative manner. Zimbabwe didn't have a sophisticated legal system that saw a person being accused of crime and then tried and then imprisoned. This is a, a system that came with colonialism, but we had a way of dealing with crimes. And the way we dealt with, cri with crimes was prevention. You don't commit a crime because if you do, the Ngozi will get you. And if he doesn't get you, it will get your descendants. And if he doesn't get your descendants, it will get their descendants and it will follow you for all time. And it's such a powerful, powerful threat that if you shed blood, that blood will cry out from the soil and it will pursue you through eternity until there is some sort of reparation. And so we actually dealt with crime prevention rather than crime punishment, you know. And that's why murder is such a, it's such an unusual crime in pre-colonial society because everybody was in this grip of the sphere of the Ngozi. So I wanted to sort of play with that a little bit to also show that, and partly the book of memory is also the book of history in some way, to show that there are other histories that may not be written down, but that still matter um, even today. And that's one of the histories that I thought I would talk about. And I hope I'm not, I don't think I'm giving too much away to say that actually the Ngozi becomes a way to understand things that have happened yes. that no other rational explanation Absolutely. really takes care of. And that was very powerful. 
powerful. I like you, the way you say powerful. I, I was worried that it might be a cop out. <laughs> 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 it's like the you know the duex machina. You know uh, this mysterious thing that happens and that solves everything and that explains everything. So I'm, I'm very glad you see it that way. But that that is to me something that is so true of of Zimbabwe that a lot of incomprehensible things only seem to make sense when you consider some of the spiritual and traditional beliefs that people hold. You have been called the voice of Zimbabwe <laughs> <laughs> by your publisher in very Not early... Not my publisher. Was Don't it my, my publisher? publisher. So in... <laughs> I think it was a, a newspaper interview. Somebody <laughs> called you the voice of Zimbabwe and you um, uh, probably rightfully so uh, took issue with that. No, so I was very snappish, I have to say. And I, and I want to apologize for that because uh, as a new uh, writer, I was very excited and I believed in my own press and I didn't realize that all press is good press. <laughs> <laughs> so please call me the voice of Zimbabwe. Call me the voice of Switzerland. Call me anything as long as you buy my book. <laughs> All right then. <laughs> um, but you do. You live in Geneva now. You mentioned Switzerland, um, and you said you wrote a lot of this book in Zimbabwe. Mm. But do you? That those are two really different places mm. to live. So do you? You've been writing about Zimbabwe um, and haven't really written about Switzerland. Why mm. do you think you keep coming back to Zimbabwe? And do you struggle with that at all when you're away from it? Well. Uh, considering that you know this book took me six years to write, I, I should be on book number four by now. And book number four was supposed to be a you know short story collection about Geneva, very strange expatriate community that I live in. But um, I think for the next three books, you know, I, I'm I'm still on the territory of Zimbabwe, and I'm still very much in that mindset of wanting to write about Zimbabwe. But I do want to write other books. There's no question about that at all. I, I'm currently researching a novel about the explorer, David Livingston. Um, I'm also um, you know, collecting stories. And by collecting stories, I mean that I'm eavesdropping on a lot of conversations <laughs> in Geneva in preparation for a new series of stories about, about the, that weird experience of living in Geneva as an outsider, and it's, a, it's an experience that we all share across race, across nationality. You'll never be Swiss, you'll never be accepted, because the Swiss just don't really like us, but they tolerate us because, you know, we spend money in the shops, you know, we, we give to the economy, the, you know, the UN headquarters in Europe is in Geneva, so it's a kind of uh, strange relationship that we have with the, with the Swiss, so I want to explore that a little bit. You just answered my next question, which is, what are you writing next? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like really fertile territory. for some. And actually, there's a I sort of sense a link as well, because in the book of memory, memory's an outsider, mm. in that she's in this kind of in-between space with her albinism casting her out of some of her um, communities, and then in other ways being something, well, it's something that marks her out and makes her different, right? And that experience of being an outsider is such... Um, fertile territory for writing mm. in, in lots of ways. A, a good friend of mine, Andrew, said the most shocking thing, because I've been insisting that um, this is not an autobiographical novel. I'm not an albino, I wasn't sold, or was I? As a child, you know, um, my brothers and sisters are all alive, and, you know, I grew up in a sort of, initially in the townships, and then in the middle class of Zimbabwe after independence, so this is completely not autobiographical at all. And then he said a couple of insightful things that made me think, yeah, maybe what I did was to really tap into that sense of being an outsider. 
because it's something I've always felt as a as a child, partly to do with the kind of schools I went to. Initially, I moved from a township school to integrate a formerly all-white school, and of course, people mocked my accent. And then, of course, my accent changed and became very roady. And then I went to an all-black girls' mission school, and people mocked my accent. So I had to change my accent again. And so, I, you know, I spent, I would say, the first 17 years of my life feeling constantly like I was on the wrong side of whatever divide was going on, you know. And the thread of mine, Andrew, thinks that I brought that aspect of my life into, into memory. So perhaps I've, I don't know, I can't analyze myself, but perhaps I'm interested in outsiders, you know. Perhaps I'm interested in odd people. And in that sense, I mean, the explorer David Livingstone, is, he, is, he was a really odd fish. Oh, my goodness. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot there. So uh, perhaps I'm just interested in people who are sort of out of place, you know, fish, fish out of water in... In, in, in the little ponds that they inhabit. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Patina. It's Thank been you an very absolute much. pleasure to have you here today. The book is called The Book of Memory and it's published by Faber. <laughs> good evening, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Hey yo, live from the land of the underground dwellers with a bunch of sound fellas. The one without measures never want to sound jealous, but can someone out tell us why the world won't act the same? That was Patina Gappa talking about the Book of Memory, which is published by Faber. Inspired by Patina's book, we are talking today about literary confessions. So the confession is a very established genre um, in the history of literature, starting, of course, with good old St. Augustine, um, <laughs> who, pu who published his confessions in AD 400. That was a long time ago. Yes, um, uh, which is uh, essentially about his um, movement from a sinful, secular man to God. Um, and many confessions, and even the word confession, have very religious connotations. Um, and meaning, um, because the ultimate confession, some might say, is confessing yourself to God. Um, but it very quickly became a secular genre. Jean-Jacques Rousseau's confessions was definitely modeled on Augustine, but it was more just about his life um, and who he was and how he came to be the person that he was. Um, later, we had Confessions of an English Opium Eater by Thomas de Quincey, which um, I would not say is really about God. It's more <laughs> about you know being addicted to opium. Um, and, you know, nowadays, the, the confessional genre definitely still exists. Um, everyone is confessing, in fact. We have creative writing teachers, the confessions of a comma queen, uh, the confessions <laughs> of a sociopath, <laughs> the confessions of a police constable. In fact, there is a whole confessions um, uh, sort of uh, list of books that are confessions of different people in different professions. I think maybe inspired by confessions of a GP. But there's something about that word confessions that is very powerful. Um, let's dissect that. What do you think, Octavia? Well, I think you know the, the relationship between confession and narrative is obviously very close. You create a narrative when you confess. And the, uh, the, but the difference between telling a story, if I said, I'm, I'm gonna tell you my story or I'm gonna confess to you, mm. um, this this word confession suggests that there's something salacious at its heart or there's something that, you know, is at odds with maybe the self that I present to the rest of the world, that actually the truth, you know, I live in, we all live in a, in a, 
um, false kind of external world and the, the truth is at the core of things. And I think, you know, talking about St. Augustine, but then also thinking about the relationship between confession and psychoanalysis as well. Um, in a, in in it's the process through the process of confessing you deliver yourself to yourself. So Saint Augustine delivers himself to God through his confessions, and the analysand delivers themselves to themselves through confession to the an analyst. Um, so there's a sense I think you can always ask the question in a confession, like these shopaholics or these police constables who are so madly confessing: Are they doing it for themselves, or are they doing it for other people? You know, really, is the is the ultimate motive behind the confession selfish? Yeah. Um. Well, there. I don't know the answer to that really, but I think the power is probably it's very modern actually to confess, isn't it? It's very modern to to really dissect yourself and uh, to self-analyze and to find the core of the truth of who you are. Um. And. I think if you're publishing a book about it, you're probably writing it for other people, but um, the thrill the thrill of it is that we're getting inside someone. We're really getting to the bottom of someone. Yeah, and we want to read it because we want what they have. We want to get that kernel of truth that they've been hiding up until now, and now there's great confession, you know. But then you have things like the celebrity um, autobiography genre, which are always sold as confessions, aren't they? Like yeah, but it's total written, you know, with three ghostwriters and everything that could be at all controversial is scratched out. Right. Or, or somebody like Katie Price, who seems to build her career on constantly confessing, but she's confessed her life story like eight times. <laughs> I don't know how many books she's got out now, but well, it's you know. the conflict of reality TV too. It's where we're, we're supposedly seeing real life. We're supposedly seeing how people actually act um, when, you know, when they're not performing. But, you know, that actually what reality TV is all about is performance. Mm. Um, and, and maybe that's true of the confessional genre as well. You're performing a confession rather than actually giving one. Yeah, I think that's, and, I think that's and, a good point. And that's part of the interest is, is the way those two things butt up against each other. So uh, fictional confessions, an interesting new layer because we know that this is fiction, and yet we have a character confessing to us, like like memory in um, in the book of memory. So, what? Why do you think an author would use confession in fiction? Well, it's it's the perfect impetus for a narrative, isn't it? It's you you start with a premise that you're going to start in one place, and by the end, you're going to have revealed something. And so, it's it's a it's an excellent narrative hook from the very beginning. Um, and I think, you know that that drive for a story, that very clear drive. And it also it gives you um the voice as well immediately. The I voice, the you know, the 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 narr the narrator. I nearly said narrator, I've been spending too much time with you. Um you know, the narrator, you ha you give them motive, you give them um truth, you give them authority over the narrative. But of course, are they always honest? That's the question, you know. Yeah, and plenty of authors have played with that too. I think it's it's strange because in fiction, we still tend to trust people who say they're confessing to us. Um, you know, I th I'm thinking about crime and punishment, which is in mm. itself a confession. I, you know, there's something there that because I'm being given a confession where the narrator says I'm going to tell you the truth about who I am and what I have done. I'm much more likely to go along with that story um but i mean plenty of authors have played with this the unreliable narrator is 
um, a very skillful thing to write. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, and you know, the sort of, uh, y- it's one of the first things you learn when you talk about fiction and voice in, in fiction. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, Humbert Humbert and Lolita, that's a confession, but is it, but is it? Yeah. And actually also this idea that, you know, via the confession of oneself, we can reach a, a more universal truth about humanity. I think that's a really big part of it as well. And why we keep reading confessions. Um, as the reader, I think you want you want to know the salacious tidbit that's at the center of everything that this person is telling you. But I think also you hope to learn something about yourself. I may, maybe that's just me, but I hope to learn something about myself in everything I read. I'm an yeah. egomaniac. Well, perhaps. I'm always <laughs> looking for the human element of literature and something that seems true to me on a human level. I think we both read a bit more emotionally than maybe everyone. But yeah, that's but certainly something I'm looking me, for. Me, an emotional reader. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> um, and actually talking about that, I, I, I feel I have to bring up gender in this conversation because, mm. um, because there is a difference in how men who confess and women who confess are received. And um, there's something about the way that people respond to a woman bearing her dirty dirty laundry, spoonerizing all the time at the moment, dirty laundry in public with with kind of revulsion because historically women are supposed to be, you know, honorable and pure and all of that bollocks, frankly. Um, Whereas a man confessing has an automatic authority because we're used to hearing men dictating and historically. Um, And actually, I always think about Tracy Emin, who's an artist that I love, but she also writes and she incorporates her her handwriting in her art and some people think that she's a genius and some people think that she's a tart and all the rest in between. Um, But she certainly finds that the reception of her work, people are horrified at this confessing of her dirty truth that they consider to be dirty. They judge her morally. Um, And actually one of the authors that we've had on the show in the past, Catherine Angel, whose um, confessional book, Unmastered, a book on desire most difficult to tell, uh, is a really interesting exploration into that as well. It's it's a book that's put together in fragments and you have her voice, you have a kind of more distant critical voice, philosophical voice, poetic voice coming through. Um, and and she also brought up this idea that, you know, being a woman and telling your core truth, because women still don't have quite equal footing globally, you know, um, there's something transgressive about it in a way that they're not, there isn't necessarily something transgressive about a man confessing. Um, yeah, I think that's right. And it's to do with space. Well, like Carlo Vinausgaard, for example, I don't, I don't think, I mean, I, I have to admit I have not read his books, um, but I don't think anyone's saying that he's transgressive, are they? They're saying lots of other things. Um, no, but it's interesting that you bring him up because I think that, his books seem revolutionary because he is, though he, as you know, as we've been talking about, there are plenty of books in which people have confessed things about their lives, but there seems to be something very new and interesting about what he's doing, which is basically describing his life um, and describing his everyday life as an eternal struggle um, and that kind of confession and being quite honest about his feelings for his wife his his problems with parenting, um, his his struggle with being a father. Uh, there's even that is is I think one of the reasons why people are very attracted to his fiction. And reading it, do you think 
he's written this for other people or do you think he's written it for himself? Do you think it's an ego-driven therapy experience? Oh, it's totally ego-driven. Right. But, um, but I don't know. I The answer is, I think the fact that he's selling them as a novel and, and not as nonfiction, you know, there there's some art to it. Mm. Uh, it. You know, it's meant to be read by other people. But I, uh, his ego looms large over those books. <laughs> I d- can we ever know, should should we and can we ever know the motive of an author when they're writing and does something being written for somebody's self make it more authentic or more pure or good? I don't Big know. Big questions with no, not simple answers, but uh, yeah, I agree, yeah. questions that it's worth asking and also why we feel more um, wary of something that would be a confession rather than a totally fictionalized thing because there is that sense that it's... Uh, I think there's a sense of some distaste at someone profiting from confessing. Yeah. There's something well, uncomfortable there yeah, for people. Yeah, and like the James Frey, for instance. I was who, thinking, yeah. Who was incredibly criticized for writing something that I think it's because we don't like to feel duped. that we're duped. Mm. Um, and so if he'd written that as a novel, it might, have done as w- it might not have done as well. Yeah. Um, and... Yet, but people wouldn't have been so critical when they found out that none of it happened. I mean, yeah. the irony of all of these things is, is that most of the famous confessions throughout literature have have since been proven not to <laughs> have much basis in reality <laughs> at all. Um, Rousseau, for instance, you know, had very. It, I I guess there were some similarities to his life, but much of it was was not what happened to him at all. Yeah, and but then this is where we get into um seriously metafictional territory because you could argue that in the act of writing, in the act of narrativizing anything, it becomes removed from reality anyway. Um, So all writing is fiction, even if it's confession and truth. It's fiction because you have constructed it yourself. And Mm. we all know how unreliable memory is, you know. Yeah, right on. Right on, babe. (laughs) Okay, well, let's uh, recommend our favorite confessional novels. Mine is, uh, I'm going back to childhood. (laughs) Uh, <laughs> and I'm going to recommend The True Confessions of Charlotte Doyle by Avi. Yes, just Avi, like Madonna or Bjork. Um, <laughs> children's book author, American. Um, and I don't think it really has made it over here. I don't, I don't recognize yeah, the title. But, uh, but it, was, it was a hit amongst my uh, 13-year-old female friends in 19-whatever, 1990-something. I think we were 19- reading Zlata's Diary. Yes, here. anyway. Oh, I, I also read Zlata's Diary. But Very good. Um, this, uh, the novel was published in 1990. It was written as the diary of a 13-year-old privileged girl who is on an ocean crossing between England and America in the 19th century. Um, and at first she befriends the cruel captain who puts her up in a nice cabin and tells her how great she is and she's different from the crew. But then, of course, um, that sounds very sinister a not <laughs> unpredictable turn of events, she sides with the crew and helps lead a mutiny and becomes the hero of the boat. And there is this particularly riveting scene when she has to climb up to the top of the mast um, and back to earn their trust and respect and a place on the crew. And of course she does it and it's great. (laughs) Um, And I was completely enthralled by this book, especially by the idea of a 13 year old girl swinging from the rigging of a ship. Um, And I think that, you know, I think it was very clever of Avi to put the word confessions in, uh, in the title because it made me feel somehow closer to Charlotte Doyle mm. and and all of her trials and tribulations. It sounds fabulous. It ma- makes me think of Pippi Longstocking as well, um, who's a bit more wacky. Bit more wacky, not confessing. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, well, mine is a book that was recommended by Catherine Angel, who who I was talking about earlier. Um, she pointed it, pointed me to it. Uh, it's by an American artist and author called Chris Krause, and it's called I Love Dick. Published in 1997 by Semiotext, who were or are still a radical-ish independent publishers um, that grew out of a 1970s reading group at Columbia University and was founded by Chris Krause's husband, philosopher Sylvain Lotringer. Um, I should have worked out how to pronounce that. Anyway, um, and it's interesting. I like it because it is a book that... Um, immediately steps into the murky territory of what's memoir, what's real, what's real, what's confessional, what's fiction. Um, and she also brings in a lot of cultural criticism and art criticism um, and a heavy dose of satire. It's got a great sense of humor, this book, and a great sense of self-reflexive um, ribbing, which is great. Um, but yeah, she really calls into questions the motives, the energy behind confession, um, the narrative explores her psychosexual obsession with Dick, um, a man, a fellow academic, uh, and, and how she and Sylvain negotiate this within their marriage, which is by this point sexless. Um, and so she makes this very funny, very arch exploration, very uncompromising exploration of sex and relationships and intimacy and what happens when ideology gets into bed with you. Um, and you know, she's, this, uh, she's an artist and a writer and he's a philosopher in real life and in the book. Um, so there's a lot of ideology in that bedroom. Um, and then at the same time, she's kind of challenging standard representations of female consciousness. She's, she just, well, she describes her own brand of writing as lonely girl phenomenology, which I really like. Um, others have called it a fusion of gossip and theory because it's so steeped in the culture that she actually inhabits in academia, in the art world, and people can recognize the figures. Dick is a real guy, um, for example. And then obviously, you know, the challenge of the title, I Love Dick, really engaging with this idea that, you know, for a woman to speak her truth, to confess her truth is, is a challenge already. Um, so yeah, I love it. I think it's a really great read, really good fun. Um, but it gets you thinking as well. And, you know, it's it's an interesting piece on gender and sexuality. So it's always going to be right up my street. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I, I would say that uh, Charlotte Doyle didn't quite <laughs> oh <God. laughs> learn about love and sex in the same way as Chris Krause. We've really we've really become caricatures of ourselves, haven't we? <laughs> uh, we'll be back in a moment to give our book recommendations with Patina. This is Literary Fiction. I'm Carrie Plitt here with Octavia, my co-host, and we have Bettina Gappa back with us to do her book recommendation. So I'll go first. Um, I'm, I have a rather silly recommendation, but um, a very good one anyway. Um, I'm going to recommend a collection of cartoons by, I think it's Tom Gold. I'm not sure Gold. Um, is it Gold? Gold? <laughs> um, called You're All Just Jealous of My Jetpack. Um, you've probably come across him before. He is featured in The Guardian, The New Yorker, and all these publications. But... Um, I was given this as a gift, and I completely understand why, because his humor is perfect for anyone who loves reading books or is 
of a literary persuasion. It's really clever, really deadpan. It features the Brontes. Mm. Um, it's just it's just so delightful. And I'm not going to repeat any of the jokes because I will <laughs> invariably kill them. But just trust me on this one. It's the perfect book to just pick up and you know you will laugh. And I love it. Um, so, Patina, do you want to give your recommendation? Yes, my recommendation would be W. Somerset Moore, who I think every writer, every reader, everyone who loves books should read. All of his novels are absolutely amazing, very plot-driven. But my favorite book by him is Of Human Bondage. It's one of the books that I would say, I know it's such an exaggeration to say it's a book that changed my life, but it's certainly a book that helped me to understand better how to tell a story and how to tell stories with unsympathetic and unlikable characters because almost every character in that novel is deeply unlikable and yet you have such great sympathy for them. It's the story of Philip Carey and he's coming to understand his place in the world. He's a young man who thinks he's got talent as an artist and then he realizes actually maybe doesn't have any talent at all and because he's a very deeply intelligent person it, it he grapples with that reality but he comes to accept that maybe he has another you know a another role another function in life and then he falls in love with a terribly horribly hideously awful woman called Mildred and somehow it um, it's not a spoiler to say it all comes right for him but not in the way that you think it's a wonderful novel. It's making me think of the Rolling Stones. You, you might not get what you want, but you get what you need or something like that. Exactly. Um, well, my recommendation is also um, about a writer who, well, I'm learning from reading how to tell a story. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's The French Lieutenant's Woman by John Fowles, and I'm reading it because, um, was it Patrick Barkham who recommended it? Was it features in Patrick's book, and then another one of our authors that we had on the show recommended it. And so I thought, right, I better read it. I'm only four chapters in at the moment, um, but I'm really, I'm really gripped. Um, I'm reading a copy that a friend picked up for me from a second-hand bookshop, and it's falling apart in my fingers. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm trying to make sure I get to the end of each page before it crumbles. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know where the story's gonna go, um, but I'm, I'm, I I'm into it, um, and I can see why he's cited as being such a masterful storyteller mm -hmm. as well. He brings together a lot of different strands and the chapters begin with quotations from other texts. Mm -hmm. So he's building this kind of intertextual world, which I really like. Um, so yeah, I'll, c I'll keep you posted on that one. It's probably gonna take me a little while. <laughs> you can have an update every month. Yeah. <laughs> so that is it for today's show. Thanks to Patina Gappa, whose novel, The Book of Memory, is published by Faber, and to Eddie Knight for production. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or ntslive.co.uk. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Please leave comments and ratings. I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. <laughs> <laughs>